Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 27. The doors became framed on the big screen, and a spotlight of great power from somewhere behind me stabbed it. Obviously a cue, the doors then opened, and a group of guards plotted out, followed by a line of people who were most definitely not guards, men and women, and several that looked like teens. Chained together, they shuffled out in a single long line. The other spots flashed on, zipping up and down these people, back and forth across the stage, and all over the many thousands who packed the square. There were twenty prisoners. I had time to count. A drone floated down and zoomed onto their faces one by one, their names and a list of things in low speak superimposed next to each on the gigantic screen. They were like sports or vid contestants, and the crowd howled and clapped and jeered. Paolo danced out to center stage, waltzing with an imaginary partner to the slow march the band had segued to. The vid flashed to him for a second or so whenever the cameras had to be repositioned. The prisoners were escorted via the roped-off space and made to hike around the stage entirely, drones ducking, bobbing, and following the whole time. At one point, a largish man broke through the cheering mob and ducked under the velvet rope. He dashed up to a middle-aged woman in the line and began swinging on her wildly. The woman, hands chained, couldn't defend herself. But the guy was obviously drunk, and he missed and slipped on the wet pavement more than he actually hit anything. She screamed, though, and tried to hide her face. Nearby drones picked up her voice, as well as the inarticulate curses of her attacker. The crowd enjoyed the show, roaring with laughter and pointing at the improv comedy routine on the screen. A few guards tried to drag the guy off, but he was burly and just focused enough to be a problem. They finally had to use stun sticks to bring him down. The prisoners were sent on, with cameras following, so I never saw how the fight ended. I guess this was seen as a sign that the crowd was adequately warmed up. The captives were finally stopped in front of the stage, spots sweeping them in energetic dazzles. In point of fact, there were too many of them to stand in a line before the kangaroo court, for the nature of this event was finally clear to me. So they had them lined up in a snaking S-shape, three drones buzzing by in fast, crisscrossing passes. The musicians jumped into a driving rock theme, and Paolo, a correspondingly ridiculous boogie. How all this could possibly have been organized so quickly was a complete mystery. With the struggle for dominance of the planet still ongoing, 
and a near-complete absence of social order, this regime had spent the time and resources to put together a show of massive proportions. It must have been in the works for weeks and had the smell of internecine competition. Yesterday's event, organized by the Orthos, had had a rinky-dink, though gruesome, aspect, while the Blues, who were seeking to limit Orthoascension, put on a spectacle like this. It would have taken manpower and money, in and above that which was needed to actually secure the revolution, though perhaps it was seen in the exact same light, just another battle for the planet. The Black Caps were strictly amateur hour compared to this production, and it put them out of the running. No doubt, in a month or so, their leaders would be rounded up, accused of treason or collaboration with the enemy or some other trumped-up nonsense, and have their own time in the spotlight. It was how these things worked. You didn't need a crystal ball. You only needed eyes. For the time being, though, all eyes were on the screen, as would be the case at each intersection tied into this event and for each person planet-wide who couldn't make it here in person. After quite a while, the probator, who I suppose now was a judge, or acting as one, stood and held up his hands for some semblance of order. This had zero effect, so Paolo did his shut up gag again. When the old man could be heard, he read from his data pad, the prepared translations flashing on the screen once more. You, the detained, stand before your peers. You stand before your accusers. You stand before your victims. Barlow herself watches you and will be your jury. Here in Freedom Square, you will find only justice. Let the trials begin. The mob raised its voice. Hats and gloves, bottles and assorted trash flying into the air. They waved their arms and jumped in place. The music played Paolo off to the side, shuffling and spinning like a proper madman. It also covered for the other guys with the probator, two of who stepped forward now, both buried in last-minute study of their data pads. One of these men was in gray military cold gear, cleaned and pressed. Text flashing on the screen declared him to be the prosecuting attorney. The other guy wore an absurdly flashy thermal suit with stripes and loud colors, like the parody of a tasteless fat cat in some broad, old-time comedy vid, he was identified as the attorney for the defense. The manufactured quality of it all was so hammy and overdone, I burst out laughing. I mean, it was a joke. All of it, the celebration, the music, the so-called judge and lawyers. How could anyone take this seriously? Even the accused must have been a bit relieved at the show, since it was clearly just that. The prosecutor stepped forward and named a name I didn't recognize. A tighter spot lanced on, swiveling back and forth along the prisoners, the band providing a drum roll and musical flourish for it, capped by a crash of cymbals when it finally locked onto its target. A drone swooped in, focusing upon a man who stood squinting and shivering in the bright night. He had no cold gear. None of them had cold gear. He was tall, 
portly and looked to be in his late thirties or so. Stooped in humiliation and likely pain, he stood still. His face was purple along one side and bloodied. His clothes may have been expensive once, but they were rags now and nearly as dirty as my own. He appeared confused, frightened, and maybe just a bit irritated, like the revolution had come at an inopportune time, interrupting a heavy schedule. The crowd started in with hooting jeers, and someone tossed a bottle at the guy, connecting with his face. It was a plastic grano jug, big and about half full, and it slammed into him with force. He dropped, dragging down the two chained next to him. This was captured in perfect detail, and for just a moment we saw the guards dash at the attacker, a dark-haired woman right at the rope line. The drone boss, or program director, or whatever, started looping the attack, showing the bottle hit the man's face over and over. Images lashed us from the Titanic screen, first from one angle, then another, all in slow motion, and after a minute or so, with added overlays detailing the source and exact arc of the projectile. The same four shots looped as the production team stalled for time and soldiers restored order off-camera. I thought I saw flashes of white light over the heads of the mob. It was coming from near the stage, implying the liberal use of stun sticks and likely more than one outraged citizen to deal with. In time, the screen switched to the high drone overhead, then did staggered dissolves of the extending intersections. Text appeared as each separate place was featured, giving the name and cross streets. People were behind barriers in these places as well, with the exact center of the merging roads wide open in another roped-off ring. Each had a piece of equipment at its heart. The drones were moving too fast to make them out, but I assumed they had something to do with the AV coverage or even crowd control. The cameras buzzed low over the streets, rocketing by intersections, showing them all to be crammed tightly. One buzzing drone kept catching a quick feed of its robotic partners on the roll-down screens mounted at each cross street, looking like big black bugs in a swarm. Between intersections, even more screens could be seen, hanging like awnings or large banners. I recognized that expensive jewelry store I'd paused before just the other night, but in a flash it was gone, like all the others, and the drones zoomed on with dizzying velocity. Eventually, the screen switched back to the stage, and a cheer arose from the people. There was Paolo, hamming it up, his frankly wide butt to the camera, shaking and bouncing in time to the music. It was silly and funny, just like everything else the man did. The feed switched to different people up there too, from time to time. The probator was sitting, looking bored, and appeared to be listening to something on an earbud or through some other subtle means. The music eventually stopped, and Paolo brought the roar back down in his skillful way. Probator Del T stood and spoke sternly in low speak for a bit, probably chastising the mob for being a mob. Then he sat and yielded the stage to the prosecutor. 
This guy read from a data pad, naming the prisoner from before as the accused, and then continued with a litany of his charges. The screen didn't show the man again with a live image, but instead flashed a still shot from some earlier time. In this, he stood next to a shiny new air car, his arm on an attractive young woman. Obviously cribbed from some private images that had been confiscated or from some online social environment, it precisely displayed a wealthy elitist, unashamed of his piggish hoarding and wealth, of money accumulated upon the whipped backs of the masses. The prosecutor spoke with passion, but I'd seen enough live vid productions of various kinds to tell he was rushing things. The show was behind time, I guessed, or they feared it was, and this trial needed to zip along quickly enough that the audience, wherever they might be watching on planet, had no time to lose interest, or to ponder how the new regime had failed to maintain order during their own show. With a flourish then, the manicured man ended his statement and yielded the floor. The probator thanked him, then offered the court's attention to the flashy defense lawyer. This guy stepped forward to the boos and hoots of the crowd. He played the part of the bad guy well. He was so good at it and so beautifully overdrawn as a character type, I decided that he was, in actual fact, an actor pressed into this service and not a lawyer at all. He took the time to take out a fat brown smoke stick, a kind of cigar, I think, and light it up slowly carefully and with complete disdain. The crowd's hatred for the guy increased, going from scattered jeers to a sustained roar. No one dared to throw anything at him, though, nor to rush the stage. After the stun stick demo, those closest to the front were at their best behavior. His statement was short and careless, even coming as it was in a language over which I had little grasp. He read through the crowd's noise, heedless of their taunts and of the fact that no one was even listening. If he spoke on the unseen, beaten man's behalf for more than a minute, I'd be surprised. It was theater, after all, and they had to keep things rolling. When the actor was done, he stepped back to a swell of catcalls and more boos. The probator made a pretense of talking with the other guys near him, who seemed to have no other function than to act as props for the older man's appearance of even-handed reasoning. Then he stood and stepped down off the dais. Once again, his words were translated on the screen, indicating they'd been provided to the producer in advance. The noise dipped noticeably as he started speaking. This court has heard the charges. His aged voice boomed from the giant screen, echoing in low speak across the square and bouncing off the nearby buildings. This court has heard the defense. This court has reached a decision. We find the defendant guilty of all charges. The mob burst into a crash of approval and enthusiasm that stretched on for over a minute, and the probator indicated for silence. He didn't get it, though, and could only go on with a near shout. 
The punishment of the defendant is turned over to the Barlow Revolutionary Army. Our patriots, our liberators, our deliverers. Justice has come. Next case. The mob screamed. It exploded. It stamped its feet. It clapped its hands. Paolo dashed across the stage, doing his upward arm thing, getting delighted roars in return. And, ever the master of timing, he withdrew again almost immediately, knowing when a simple flourish was required and when the show had to go on. On the screen, the prosecutor stepped forward again, named a woman this time, and read the charges quickly. An unflattering still image flashed onto the screen, and she glowered out at the square in what looked like a corporate portrait. It was only up for a few seconds before the feed returned to the stage. Her defender talked after that and also did his best to hurry it along, though he did take the time to flick his cigar ashes out at the crowd. The probator deliberated about five seconds, then pronounced the same judgment as before. He made another speech at the end, but shorter this time, and for the rest that followed, he dispensed with it entirely. The show's producer must have been taking the pulse of the mob, just as Paolo seemed to do, because the group on stage fairly raced through the long chain of defendants now, spending only a minute or so on each of the last few. They spoke fast, and I couldn't even tell what most of the defendants' names were. The screen only showed some canned video and stills, and not even for all of them, sometimes cutting away to the crowd and random howling people holding up homemade signs in bright colors, and the trials raced by in a blur. The square had settled into a dull murmur, which came across more like the sound of a waterfall or an engine running. It never stopped and sometimes swelled alarmingly, briefly, for no apparent reason. Around me, folks were talking and laughing among themselves, paying scant attention now the proceedings had become repetitious. Two enterprising groups nearby were in negotiations over some chemical products wrapped in blister packs. They kept an eye out for overhead drones, but were otherwise nonchalant and professional. An upsurge in the volume and energy in the square alerted us to the fact that the trials were at an end. The screen flashed to the perpetually sour face of Probator Del T, who stood once more and waved to a woman in uniform that we had yet to hear from. She stepped forward as the old man sat down and read from a data pad. English and Seishan translations were superimposed above and below, this time considerably before the woman even started speaking. It has been the justice of the people she started to say, but began again with a shout because the noise never dropped. It has been the justice of the people. We have spoken. This civilian court has found each of the defendants guilty and has remanded them into the custody of the Barlow Revolutionary Army. I have received my orders. It is the decision of the high circle of the revolutionary army that these criminals 
who are guilty of horrific injustices against their fellows shall receive the maximum penalty. Do mel vuton! The mob went insane then. Shouts, screams, clapping, stomping, hats, gloves, garbage. It was positively raining the stuff. And a chant arose almost immediately. Vuton, vuton, vuton. I didn't know the meaning, and the phrase hadn't been translated on the screen. The feed up there had switched at some point to the highest drone. They had it do a slow spin and widen its visual pickup to encompass the extending streets. Finery was host to a festival of lights. From orbit, the city would be bright, happy, joyous. Indeed, so it was from the ground. The screen image narrowed again on the circle in the middle of the square. That actually had to be fairly close to where I was standing, but there were still about 10,000 people in the way. Spotlights leaped out and illuminated the spot, bringing up a caustic, inflicting sort of glow over those heads, along with robots swooping in and out of the beams. Feeds from these drones came on screen, cycling quickly. It was confusing for a bit, with huge, staggered, rolling swaths of blurred movement bathing the square. But as one of the robots finally slowed its mad careen and descended to roughly human height, I could see it last. It was a prisoner. The first one. That fat, tired, beaten man who'd taken a bottle to the head. He was now dressed in a heavy, white, unitard-type garment that left only his face exposed. He was inside an open barrel, the sides of which came up to his waist, and he appeared to be manacled to a standing pole or pipe in the center. The feed switched to that of another drone, which passed over slowly, and I could see the barrel was approximately two-thirds full of water. The man had to be freezing. His white coverall was soaked. The robots circled him like blowflies, like buzzards. They were the hungry eyes of a vengeful world. He seemed dazed, maybe never having recovered from the attack earlier. His eyes were closed and his head lolled from one side to the other, showing a glint of wetness on his face. This was another clear sign of the event's pre-design, as there hadn't been enough time from the end of the trials to this guy getting chained in place. The feed now switched to one of the outlying intersections. The equipment that I couldn't identify before became clear, with a camera just settling into place. Here was a second figure, dressed like the first, in a second barrel. It switched again to another intersection, another person. The images cycled quickly, revealing that the prisoners had all been spirited away during their so-called trials so as to be prepared for this latest humiliation. The screen now returned to the first man, thousands of people and just a stone's throw away from me. The drone circled him before stopping at his side, focusing on his semi-conscious form. The band struck up a low, tension-filled, tuneless background surge, like you'd get in a suspense vid. 
with a smoothness that implied practice, a tall woman I hadn't noticed before stepped forward. She had been inside the cordoned-off circle, but standing near the rope. Two more drones floated down on either side of her, catching her in motion with quick camera cuts. She was dressed differently than anyone else. She wore a short black tunic over a soldier's uniform and a blue hood over her face. She held a metal rod that looked something like a stun stick. With an audible click and buzz that the drones pacing her picked up easily, a tiny arc of yellow electricity danced at its tip. The production team had to be using noise filters on the feed mics because the crowd's endless chant didn't mask this sound at all. The hooded figure raised the sizzling device skyward, then touched the man on his chest, just once and for only a moment. He screamed and gyrated as the voltage ran through him. She did it again and then again, torturing him as he stood chained and shivering in the water. Except that it wasn't water at all. The electric spark finally ignited a flame on the man's torso, which he didn't seem to feel at first. For two agonizingly slow seconds, he had no reaction other than gasping out a single hard breath from the jolt itself. Then he noticed it and made several short, sharp yells of alarm as the heat found itself a home. Flames ran over his oil-soaked body, racing to the top. In only moments, he was aflame and still alive. He keened his agony. I actually heard the cry without the aid of any drones, rising for a single moment above a mob's roaring ecstasy. One camera settled in front of his face, the image zooming in as he thrashed and raked his tortured vocal cords, eyes clamped shut in an utterly vain attempt to hold off the fire. It rose in a tall, steady tongue, his fibrous coverall wicking up oil from the reservoir. Indeed, he was now the wick, this man who had lived a life of ease and privilege now burning for the catharsis of a people. Oh, he screamed. He banged his head against the pipe, hard, harder. He was trying to die, to destroy his mind, to end his life in these hellish last moments. But he had no room and only made millions laugh. He choked and stopped moving all of a sudden when he inhaled from his scream, scorching his lungs and inner organs. God, was he finally dead? And still no! The man shivered, not as before from the cold, but seizure-like. The camera closed in on his charred, now unrecognizable face, eyelids gone, a sputtering, sizzling fluid seeping from the sockets. Illuminescent seconds. Happy, joyful moments. Then his trembling was over. He stood there, dead, yet fully alive with brightness and justice, chained to a pipe I may have helped to carry. 
On the screen, a legend appeared beneath that glowing, blackened face. The terre of the soil of the earth. Righteous vengeance. A quick drum riff and the band broke into a fast, celebratory rock tune. The mob howled. From the courthouse roof, behind both stage and screen, first one, then five, then I don't know how many skyrockets jumped into the dark sky with bright whooshes. Moments later, they exploded above finery in shocking, dazzling colors. Cracking booms, flashing bursts, they smote the heavens with rainbow sparks of pure beauty. Crystalline, like long winter light playing upon shattered ice, over and over and over and over. The screen jumped to drones in the outlying intersections. At the center of each was another human oil lamp. The feed rested for just seconds at a time, names hovering under contorted visages. One of these was marked Ergi Blangi. I hadn't spotted him in that long line of battered, dirty prisoners. I hadn't caught the name, nor even known it in full. Though transformed by agony and terror, I yet saw the handsome, languid boy who'd driven us to safety. Wealthy, vain, sophisticated, valiant and loved, shrieking and hated. Just a thrill of recognition as that bright, striking face morphed into charred meat. Then the feed flicked away to the death of another. I couldn't fall down for the press of laughing, joyous bodies. I couldn't waver or stumble. But for a moment, the world fully left me. Unmoving but for the sway of a mob, buffeted upon its madness and exultation, I lost myself. We were a living thing, a single, mindless animal that could choke down horror, excrete joy, and slaver for more. They held me in this place, maybe for all time. Yet I found my voice and I raised it in a howl, like hope aflame, like a soul of fuel. The screen switched to that high overhead camera and its wide-angled vision of the city. Avenues and factories, dark skyline, brilliant fireworks. Turning slowly, it captured these stunning, bursting flowers, so beautiful in their transience, appearing and fading like they'd never been at all. And far below, spreading out from the square in which I stood, small, thin flames smiled up from each point of convergence, like tiny, insignificant candles in the street. You 
You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.